Okay, hello and welcome to another edition of Cooler Talks. I'm Sharif and I'm joined here by the wonderful Emily Jones. Thank you, Emily, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Also known as Echo Juliet. Yep. A DJ, a producer, a facilitator. The list goes on. You really are involved in every aspect of the musical industry. <laughs> and uh, I'm very looking forward to diving into your background, things that drive you, and also any value you can give for people wanting to get involved in the music industry and particularly looking at facilitating workshops and events and empowering people to, to really take their own creative steps in their process. Yeah. So um, just a little bit about um, Cooler Talks. It's based on an event that I run called Cooler Collective, which runs multi-art events mainly in London, but we also used to do events in Manchester as well. Um, you're also from Bir- you're from Birmingham, aren't you? Yeah, I, yeah. I used to live in Birmingham. We just before the <laughs> podcast started, we were we were chatting a little bit about that, um, and I would like to dig a little bit into that city and how it's influenced you. Mm. But let's just get di- let's dive straight in and and hear a little bit about who you are, what drives you, and and kind of what got you involved in the music industry in, in the first place. Yeah, I mean that's that's a interesting question because <laughs> it feels like quite a long time ago now. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, I. Um, now I I describe myself as a DJ and a producer of electronic music and a percussionist. Um, and then also alongside that as a kind of a day job, I do a lot of creative producing and facilitating of projects that um, support emerging artists to develop their careers and also a lot of work around like diversity and inclusion. Um, so those are kind of my main interests, I guess, things that drive me. Um, and in terms of how I ended up having a career in music, it's quite... Uh, quite an interesting one I guess like I I kind of uh when I was a kid it took me a while to find the right instrument I always loved music but it took me a while to kind of find my way to what I wanted I discovered the drums when I was like 11 um started playing absolutely loved it decided I wanted this to be my career applied for a bunch of music colleges and got rejected um and I think in 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 hindsight, I think basically I started quite late compared to a lot of people that were auditioning for music colleges. And so I felt like I wasn't talented enough, but actually I just hadn't had as long to sort of develop and learn. Um, so I kind of at that point was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm not good enough for this then. And I went off and I used some experience that I got at university of organising gigs and went off and, and sort of pursued that instead, like behind the scenes kind of roles. Um, and then kind of followed a bit of a career ladder in that for quite a long time um and it was only really in the last five years through starting DJing that I've kind of rediscovered music making for myself and got like a new perspective on it through doing electronic music which has been been pretty amazing so it's it's, there's been a few twists and turns Mm -hmm. (laughs) into sort of how I got got to this point I guess it's not been a like straightforward path but I guess that's what makes it interesting (laughs) yeah I actually think a lot of people that um don't go down the theoretical route have to learn to be more adaptable and have to learn Mm. to kind of create their own opportunities and I think there is a big Mm. a lot of value in that Uh, would you say that is partly why you now like to facilitate for people because you can kind of uh, allow people to to express themselves in in like a safe space that isn't so much like going to college and, and follow a very regimented path yeah definitely I think I mean I one of the things that I've always wanted to do and never got to um, and never quite managed to do it is to create some kind of um, musician training and development project which sidesteps going to music college essentially and kind of gets you to the same point without having to go through that system because a lot of the friends and people I know that have been through that system have really struggled 
with it. There are lots of things about about it and about the culture which can be quite toxic, mm-hmm. not very safe spaces, not very inclusive. Um, I mean, I kind of got a little bit of an insight into it because I, I did a music degree, like an academic music degree in the end. Um, and I had a few lessons at a conservatoire. So I kind of got to be in that environment a bit, but kind of be removed from it. And there, yeah, there are a lot of problems <laughs> mm-hmm. with that and the way that it operates. Um, so I think I think that's definitely a big driver for why I'm kind of doing a lot of the work that I'm doing now is wanting, wanting to create those opportunities for people and also empower people and help them discover ways they can express themselves that it took me such a long time to find mm-hmm. <laughs> i think that's a, that's a really big thing like i you know particularly women um i think because self-confidence was a really big thing for me um like for for a long time after i started djing my boyfriend would say to me you ever thought about like you know doing remixes or making electronic music and i was always like no i could never do that i'm not good enough for that i'm not talented enough and then he bought me a copy of ableton as a surprise and i was like oh <laughs> now i have to do it mm-hmm. <laughs> and then realized i could so I wasted all those years being like, nah, I can't do that. So I, I just want to help other people overcome those those kind of barriers that you put up for yourself, I guess. Did you feel like you were, you were missing a mental figure in those years, or what, I mean, what brought the the self doubt? I think I think it's actually linked to some of what I was saying before about like all those rejections, like early on from music college and feeling like I wasn't talented enough. Um, I also I think it was just from having not found the right thing because I think sometimes if you find the right the right interest or right path for yourself you get you 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 can tell because you get obsessed with it and it's the only thing you want to do and it's the right the right thing and i think that none of those things before were quite right so i wasn't i wasn't like committing every waking minute to it because i wasn't like really in love with it in the same way that i have been with with making electronic music i guess um but i did i was very fortunate that like around the time that my boyfriend bought me this copy of ableton um I had a DJ lesson with a friend, a producer called Sam Redmore, who's based in Birmingham, and I was talking to him about about producing. And he was he said, "Oh, I've got some some stems I can send you some for, to you know mess around with some remixes if you want." And then he basically gave me like a four hour lesson, production lesson for free, and just said, "No, you don't need to pay me. Just like pay it forward later." Um, so essentially, that's what I'm trying to do now, really. Which is yeah, it's really it was really amazing that he gave me that input and continued to give me feedback and help afterwards, and is still helping me with stuff now. Um, so there was there was a kind of mentor in that sense, I guess. But that was like once I'd got myself over the <laughs> initial hurdle. Um, yeah, paying it forward that that's an amazing thing. I always like to think of uh, the idea that if if you win, we all win. If I win, we all win. It's it's the mm. collective effort that counts. And I think in in an industry like like the music industry supporting each other is really important and mm. maybe people don't get the opportunity to do that but the fact that you're there doing what you're doing is is really um, inspiring so uh, can, can you walk us a little bit through about what what exactly you then do when it comes to facilitation mm. well yeah there's, I mean there's a few different projects that I work on I'm involved with um so the most kind of um the sort of most involved one, I guess, um, is the the work that I do for Rhythm Section, the record label, um, where I run a project called Future Proof, which is um, about giving emerging DJs and producers um, support to kind of build their careers, basically, um, and taking all the things that ri- the Rhythm Section team have learnt over the 10 plus years it's been operating and kind of taking that knowledge and sharing it with the next generation, basically. Um, so I'm one of two people that sort of produces the events within that. We run masterclasses, um, which are streamed as well. 
um, and the, the the six people that are taking part get a whole bunch of um, brilliant support from uh, like free Ableton lessons to Pirate Studio credit, um, free Audio Technica equipment. It's I, uh, to be honest, I feel like we created the dream package that I w- I wish I could have had. Mm. <laughs> um, so that's been really a really sort of fantastic thing to be involved with. Um, and then I also teach music production for Saffron, uh, which they run courses for women and gender minority students. Um, and I'm also involved with a community called Selectorhood, which is a DJ collective for women and gender minority DJs and producers. Um, yeah, I mean, there's many things. <laughs> that, that's a few. Um, I do some consulting around diversity and inclusion um, around class, like working class inclusion. Um, yeah, quite a lot of different things. There's probably some I've forgotten as well, to be honest. <laughs> well, this this project with, with rhythm sections that sounds amazing. What really stands out for me is the amount of people and uh, different businesses that are involved. You mentioned Pirate, you mentioned all, the artists themselves and it's like all these little pieces of the puzzle that come come together. So, so what what's your role within it exactly? So, essentially, um, I I used to run the Patreon that Rhythm Section had, which was created during lockdown and offered offered online masterclasses and mentoring. Um, but you had to pay to be in it. Um, I used to be in that Patreon. <laughs> I used to be a member of it. Um, and they needed some help running it once stuff started to reopen. So I, I sort of stepped forward. And then through doing that, I had a conversation with Bradley Zero, who runs the label, about how there's potential to get funding to do this for free, open up to more people. Um, so essentially, I worked with him and Henry from the label team. And the three of us put together, pulled together this project. I wrote the funding applications. So it's funded by Arts Council and PRS Foundation. Um, and then myself and Henry basically organize and deliver the entire the entire thing so that's um we we ran an open call last autumn which we had about 200 people apply to and we chose six um and those six people got all that free equipment and training they get to come to the master classes and have like one-to-one chats with the people that are leading them so um like for example we've had uh bradley's done a master class with moxie we had tash lc um do one jordan rakai's one um Uh, done one and then coming up we've also got one with rough doug and one about labels as well so quite like quite amazing artists to be having like one-to-one chats with um they get mentoring so essentially i my role is to organize all of that (laughs) 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 it's quite a long list (laughs) Uh, but a a lot of people that are hosting these master classes are also affiliates of the label so that's quite nice again it, it builds into that that community aspect yeah exactly i think it's been really nice one of the things that we've seen through doing it is that all the people that applied that weren't successful those like 194 other people or whatever it was we've tried to stay in touch with them and invite them to come to the master classes where we've got space for extra people um we did like a sort of a, a showcase kind of party thing for the project a couple of weeks ago so we invited everyone down to that and it does feel like from the people that have been able to come to those events we have sort of started to build a little community of DJs and producers that are all around the same level um, and at the same point in their careers, but we're kind of like bringing them all together for conversations around the label and helping them get to know the team as well, which hopefully will help them in the longer term. So it definitely is like a very community-oriented thing, and that's Rhythm Section's thing is is community, really. It's it's not just we're going to sell some records and put on a party. It's like it's about the people, which is really good. Wow, that's, that's, that really sounds like an amazing project mm. to be involved in and to manage all of that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a lot, but it's good fun. Um, yeah, I think I'm hoping we can do it again. 
um, we need to do some more fundraising. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's been so so impactful so far just from even chatting to the the participants like informally. It's been been a really great thing. And and with fundraising now. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult one because I've also been in the position when I've started to kind of look at, at funding and the first step I think would probably be to really understand the value you're creating and mm. to concisely and assertively regurgitate it a hundred times in a different way <laughs> and to answer the question yeah. <laughs> that, that they want so that you're hitting home exactly what you're doing it for. Can you can you walk me through um, some, some of some of that application process because I know it's it's competitive isn't it yeah yeah it can be really competitive especially if you're based in London um uh, which was always going to be a challenge for rhythm section like although we were inviting people from around the country to take part all the activity was happening in London um but yeah it's it's essentially like I think the first the first core step which is really easy to miss is that like most funders want to fund something that's a time-limited project um which means like a very well-defined set of activities and plans that will happen within a time period. And sometimes it's quite hard to get your head around that when you've not applied for funding before. Um, I mean, something like Future Proof is quite, is fairly straightforward because it was like, well, we want to do this for six months and then have a break. So it's six months long and it's going to contain X, Y and Z things. Um, but but then also different funders have different priorities <laughs> just to add to the complication. So it's about working out what they want their money to achieve. Um, so for someone like Arts Council England, at the moment it's about getting the general public involved in creating and making art or music in whatever form. Um, and and also helping talent from this country to kind of um, fulfil its potential. So like talented young DJs and producers, helping them realise what they could be doing um, and helping them get there. Um, so that's that's what they're interested in. PRS Foundation are very interested in the creation and performance and promotion of new music. So they're not interested in DJs. They're only mm -hmm. interested in producers. <laughs> um, so when you start to kind of delve into these things a bit, it helps narrow down what you what you might be pitching to them, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and it also is about value for money, like how many people are you reaching for the amount of money that you're asking for and how much how in depth is the support? Um, I've done a lot of assessing of funding applications, which helps with this, <laughs> with with knowing the other side of this stuff, I guess. But yeah, they're the kind of main things. It's like specifically, what are you going to do in what time period? And then who is it going to benefit and how many people um, and how much money do you want? <laughs> Are kind of the, yeah, the core starting points. And then from that, usually you can kind of through reading their um, criteria or their guidance, like reading all the guidance notes, you can start to pull out extra boxes that you can tick to help make it more likely to be successful. And I think it's fair to say that all the funders, all the music funders are pretty concerned with diversity and inclusion at the moment as well. And I think that's another um, big thing that you can use to work in your favour. Um, you know, if you're applying for funding, is thinking about how you're making what you're doing diverse, how you're, if you're trying to reach a particular community of people, how you're involving them in the decision-making not just doing things to people <laughs> or for them, but like actually making sure that they they have voices in that in that process. It's just kind kind of a, a more of an emerging priority, I guess. It's more of a recent thing, but I think it's really good, really positive because otherwise it's just like people running around going, "I'm going to do this for you because I I think that you want it," and then the people they're doing this thing for are like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a. I mean, 
yeah, it's a massive topic. <laughs> Do you feel like a lot of the funding goes towards projects in London? Because I have heard from people that you know, they're trying to spread it out to different parts of the country. Yeah, I think that has been a problem for a long time. I think it um, there's more efforts being made towards that with some funds than others. Um, I mean, it was a lot in the news um, recently about the Arts Council's like national portfolio funding, which is their top level, highest amount of money funding. And they've they've made a really conscious move to move a lot of that money out of London and stop funding some really big organisations in London, which is why it made the headlines. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's definitely easier to get funding if you're not based in London. <laughs> and there's particular cold spots where some funders don't get many applications. Like I know the Northeast, for example, I used to work in the Northeast and a lot of the funders would say, oh, we don't get enough applications from the Northeast. The West Midlands is another one, actually. <laughs> well, that's your home turf at the moment. Yeah. So, so with, with Birmingham, what's how, how have you done uh, projects there and, and got funding? Um, I mean, with Selectorhood, we got some youth music funding. Um, and then also, um, gosh, that was, yeah, last year. Yeah, last year. Um, through the Commonwealth Games being in Birmingham last year, there was a lot of money available, a lot of funding available. So Selectorhood also got some money from the Commonwealth Games to run some DJ workshops in schools for like young girls and non-binary students, which was really cool. It was really fun. I taught on some of those and it was like, it was brilliant. <laughs> um, so yeah, bits and pieces in Birmingham. Nothing for myself yet, actually. That's next on the list. I need to do some funny applications for my own stuff. <laughs> What's your own stuff? Like, what, what, what well, like um, for, I've, I've got an EP that I want to release later this year, um, which, um, I mean, releasing music is expensive. <laughs> and because of the way the streaming operates now, the income is minimal <laughs> so you know unless you can afford to just drop a couple of thousand pounds of your own money into it it's really helpful to have some outside funding basically mm. so i've been looking at uh, potentially making making an application for that to support things like um pr or pressing vinyl or i mean there's any number of things even the mixing and mastering costs you know that that can be like easily five six hundred pounds before you've even finish making it <laughs> definitely something wrong in that system and flawed uh, well, the first guest i ever had on this talk show was um josh mason from somewhere soul oh i know him yeah, yeah and uh <clears throat> you know he really advocates for supporting independent artists mm. and offering them insights into managing their stress and managing their content and making mm. marketing that's meaningful mm. and yeah, there's a, there's an immense pressure on independent artists to release all the time, yeah. and there's such high expectations, and also expectations that as an artist you you put on yourself, and mm. and that and that you want you, you want to have a music video, you want to have uh, a release that mm. that can get picked up and spun on radio and be mastered at a very high quality. Mm. Um, I recently helped a friend out with with their their music video, and it was an amazing process to do mm. um, to do it and seeing the whole team, but it was self funded and it was an incredible bill at the end of it and yeah. um and it's like what is the solution here <laughs> i'm just yeah it's, it's a big question but you're talking about funding mm. are there so are there funding opportunities for producers and djs out there yeah i mean um definitely more more easily for producers than djs um although arts counseling in england does accept applications from djs now which they didn't used to um so yeah, there's I mean there's there's a whole bunch of different things. Help Musicians UK is a really good one. Um, 
they particularly support recording and releasing music. Um, it's like £3,000 grants that are out there. Um, youth Music, which I mentioned before, is another really good one, particularly if you're under 25. Um, they have a programme called Next Gen, which is... Um, they make it pretty easy to apply. It's pretty straightforward um, and kind of simple. They've got some really good guidance and stuff, so that's worth looking at. Um, yeah, Arts Council England have a few that tends to be kind of bigger amounts of money. Um, developing your creative practice is there, the main one that's kind of aimed at artists. And I think that's up to £10,000. It's a good chunk of money. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's a few options out there. And PRS Foundation, which I mentioned earlier, um, they have a, a f open fund for artists, music creators, um, which tends to, that, that one is very, very competitive. I mean, they're all competitive. PRS, PRS Foundation's ones are particularly, <laughs> particularly competitive. Um, so yeah, there, there, are, there is support out there. There's a lot of demand for it and the success rates can be anything between like 10 and 30%, sometimes lower than 10 in some cases. So sometimes you have to apply more than once as well, which is, you know, is a challenge because the amount of time it takes to write these things, <laughs> like yeah. time is money um, and you don't get paid for writing them. Um, but the but the payoff can be some actual funded time to be working on your own music. So yeah it, as far as as other options go it's 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 a it's a pretty good one um personally i think for a long time um we've sort of evolved into a system where labels are not um investing in the early stages of artists careers anymore and the arts funders are picking up the the bill basically um i think that's been a been a bit of an issue because that all that early investment for those early releases that don't make money previously would have been done by labels and it's not anymore since the kind of big crash and the streaming revolution and stuff. And they were like, oh, we don't have money for this anymore. Um, so, yeah, I think it might be maybe a controversial opinion, but I think I think there's a bit of a gap there now. And that's why there's so much competition for funding, unfortunately. But I think the business model of labels has always been a bit flawed mm. as well. Um, with uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of seen as a loan rather than... Yes. It's not really... True. Um, money to keep you going and keep you afloat it's it's it's, it's money that ultimately needs to be repaid in some way yeah true that is true yes yeah. so it's never your money in the first place that is that is true um i think it's yeah i think there's also a big question for for labels now particularly in the age of like easily accessible online distribution of music uh, the question is what is the label for <laughs> mm -hmm. they're not able to put in money up front uh, you could you could get the music onto the streaming platforms yourself pretty cheaply so what is the label doing? <laughs> mm. um, and sometimes the answer is nothing, mm. um, to be honest. I think... Usually good branding and exactly. <laughs> a it's bit about, of social it's, following. It's, yeah, it's about brand and audience, really. Yeah. Those, and, you know, maybe some labels will be able to help you with the bookings or, or you know, run events that you might be able to play at or whatever. Um, but, yeah, really it's about, it's about audience and brand. So essentially they're just marketing departments. <laughs> yeah, I think everything is now marketing in, in yeah. a way. That, that there's so much pressure on people to market themselves in any industry. Mm. And I think um, people's, uh, people don't really realise that actually their job involves marketing. And if you don't yeah. do marketing, you get excluded in a way. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't want to believe that. And I don't think that it's necessarily... If you don't market yourself, you won't succeed. I don't believe that at all. But mm. I think it's the the age we live in now is that there's a lot more pressure for you know artists to 
be posting and yeah. label owners to be posting and uh, businesses to be posting and engaging yeah. their their audience. Yeah. The idea about building a community and building uh, a narrative and um, building something of value is a great thing is a great thing to do. And if you can mm. do that digitally, then great, you can reach more people and, and you can do that. So it's, it's also visualizing what marketing can do for you and what it can do for others as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, with your role as a facilitator, I've also checked out your socials as well. You, you bring people into your world and you, <laughs> you, you show them what you're doing and, and, and uh, the way you, you use social media, in my opinion, is, is very positive and mm. it's of value. It's not, it's not just, just doing the rounds. You know, it feels like you're, you're sharing, but there's also some co-creation and co-value there. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for noticing that. I've been trying to do that more recently. Um, something I've been thinking about a lot more and that, that idea of building a community and, and it being a two-way conversation. It's not just like, hey, I'm doing a gig, come to the gig. Yeah. Hey, buy this record, go listen to this, go do that. Like, I think that's um, it's something actually that Josh from Somewhere Soul has talked about as well. I've heard him talk about that Like, you can't be sell, sell, sell all the time. Um, it, people don't want that. And people want people want you to see you as the human you are yeah. like people don't want don't want to be marketed at continually it's and i i see it a lot like um i think it's it's like the path of least resistance it's like here's a post with all my gigs that are coming up here's a radio show i've done here's a this i've done here's a that i've done and it's like well sure but like what's what's interesting about that <laughs> yeah well how do you feel about it how does it how does it make other people feel like there's got to be more going on than just like like it's like standing out on the street with a megaphone <laughs> like you would never do that yeah you might have a conversation with someone and then you know so i'm trying to yeah trying to engage in a slightly more community oriented way which has been really has been really nice actually and really rewarding and just trying to kind of have yeah have conversations with people rather than just shouting at them <laughs> i just think it's a mixture of polished and raw content so yeah you do want so with um, the event stuff, it's nice to have really polished mm. videos uh, showing off something that looks really cool and, and high quality. Mm. But then also I've seen engagement go way higher when it's just phone and uh, crackly noise. And yeah. It's just of something that, that looks quite special and, and is in a moment, right? So yeah. it's that balance, I think, that is important. It doesn't all have to be so polished. Although how many videos have you seen of a musician like chopping up four or five parts of a song and layering it up like it, it, the content starts to look the same sometimes and and it's yeah and but, but it is also very engaging like I, I i do like watching that kind of content <laughs> yeah know? i mean I, I i've messed around with things like that um at the start of this year i think we've had a bit of time in january um i've been messing around with um finding um silly little video clips like on instagram or tiktok of animals doing musical things and then oh, remixing yeah. them oh <laughs> So I've like remix, remix like a beatboxing cockatoo oh, and wow. a cat that keeps banging its food bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just really stupid, but I really enjoy that it's really stupid. And you'd be like, are you having fun while you're making that yeah, content? Yeah, and people seem to quite enjoy it as well. Like, and I, I mean, it's not something I'm going to spend too long on. <laughs> I'm, I mean, at the moment, I'm managing one every two months, so it's not. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like the the time the time to sort of output ratio, like input output on those things is mad. Like I probably in total spend like half a day making one and it becomes like a 30 second video that someone will watch once. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to be doing it for fun. You can't put that amount of time into something from scratch expecting yeah. some kind of return. 
but also not being too caught up on likes and follows and it's all everything you yeah. do is is um is is a journey to where you're where you're heading which sounds kind of very obvious but it's at the same time it's one step at a time and as long as you're going along your journey and you're learning along the way and having fun doing it one day hopefully you'll 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 get your goal of of the engagement you want yeah just as long as you don't get too caught up on that at the beginning yeah exactly and i think i've definitely realized recently that um someone described them as vanity metrics things like number of plays on spotify or number of followers on instagram they don't they don't translate to money yeah <laughs> it's purely makes you feel good about yourself and makes you look good and the number of and now i've been paying more attention to it the number of people i've seen recently that have like 8000 followers and their posts get less likes than mine because they've just accrued all these followers who are not really that engaged or interested with what they're doing or they haven't kept them engaged um so it's like, what's the point? It is purely a vanity number. What's the point in having 8,000 followers when they're not actually seeing what you're doing? Mm. You might as well have less and, and then be more active. Um, so I think what that's made me realise is there's no point beating yourself up about those things. Like It's it's just numbers on a screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's literally it. Like Unless you're actually interacting and engaging with those people and talking to them, like they're just numbers. Mm. Um yeah. And, and do you use all of that? Would you say as a, if your what's your personal brand? So because mm. you're obviously pushing your DJing and production, mm. but then you are also pushing the facilitation and the inclusivity and, and that messaging of, mm. of, of, of what you what you stand for. Um, how, how are you how are you positioning yourself? Would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say mainly I'm focusing more on the, my music side of it, but the those elements of activism and feminism do have a part to play in that and they are themes that come through in my music as well so that's definitely one like that's one of the core things i am talking about on social media in terms of in terms of brand um and also alongside that um a lot of the time when i'm making music i'm using it as a way to process or deal with like difficult things or emotions or things i don't really know what to do with like my my resort is to go and go and make some music or go and DJ or whatever. And so I'm trying to also on social media and generally talk more about those things too, um, whether it's like struggling with self-confidence or whatever, you know, whatever it is that's along along those those lines, but using music as a way of escaping and dealing with those things um, is also kind of a core part of what I'm trying to kind of put, put forward and, and the kind of facilitation and, and sort of creative producing that I'm doing with projects thematically is all interconnected i guess mm. um i don't i don't talk about that stuff as much uh generally because i'm trying to put the focus onto music at the moment um but that might change mm. who knows <laughs> i think it's also really nice to to keep your creative creativity flowing as well by doing different aspects and different yeah. jobs within within an industry or within uh, within music so yeah. if you were just doing production all day would you not get obsessed over a hi-hat would you not get too <laughs> obsessed over the small things and miss the bigger picture whereas when you're translating that into a workshop for uh, different genders and, and minorities or, or you're showing showing up for people as well and, and and giving back does that not give you a whole more rounded perspective on, on things and also feed into the creative process yeah a hundred percent it does i mean actually one of the really eye-opening things for me about starting to teach production is how how much it changed my view of my own music making okay, <laughs> um particularly because i'd hear myself telling people things and giving them advice and then at the end of the class i'd be thinking 
I should do that. <laughs> I, was like, I should take my own advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's definitely like a there's a bit of a kind of like virtuous circle going on. Um, even with the with the um, rhythm section project as well. You know, I'm at the masterclasses too. I'm learning from those those things too, and um, it is it is all really interconnected, and it it works quite nicely for me at the moment. That about half my week is sort of. Um, event and facilitation based work and the other half is DJing and producing and and kind of being out and about and doing things it kind of it feels like quite a nice balance of different parts of my brain and I've kind of always always said to myself that if I end up doing more music if the balance shifts I still want to keep some element of that other stuff um that's kind of the the long-term plan is to just gradually adjust the balance but still keep keep some sort of consultancy or event producing or whatever it is just for my own sanity <laughs> yeah sanity but also like you said you, you do seem to get a lot from it mm. um so with with the workshops that, that you do particularly um you're saying selectorhood mm. is with, with, with the classrooms how was that process and and how, how did you pre prepare for something like that because to teach someone production from scratch if mm. you're a producer there's one thing knowing things that you picked up but also how to teach it and how to make it comprehensible and mm. especially you would was it mainly was it just women and non-binary that, mm. that you were working with yeah so so I was very fortunate that with um with selectorhood the first bit of teaching that I did was um the DJ classes that we did in schools for Commonwealth Games last year and that project was organized by one of our members who used to be a music teacher so she actually wrote us like a syllabus for the <laughs> for the workshops which was amazing um I, I used to um, I, I taught drums a little bit like a long time ago before I sort of gave up playing really. Um, so I had a little bit of teaching experience one-on-one -on -one, but never with a whole class. So it was really great that she'd kind of given us a bit of a framework really, which was really helpful. And then from that, I then went to go on to teach music production for Saffron. And they also have, because they run courses in Birmingham, London, Bristol, Nottingham, they have a syllabus as well, kind of a lesson plan at least the first half of the course is fairly kind of fixed. They've, you know, they've developed and tested it and it's like, we know this works. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the first lesson, we'll be looking at a lot of the um, sort of setup of the software and talking about basic concepts like MIDI and audio and um, recording and things like that. And then, you know, the second session, um, I think the second session is like drums programming drums which is a massive and very fun topic yeah. <laughs> so so it's really great that they've got that kind of framework and then as the course goes on it's like a six week course there's a little bit more room for the for the person teaching it to just kind of you know kind of bring in more of their own work to demonstrate things to show some of their own approaches to stuff um i definitely um before i started it had a little bit of imposter syndrome mm -hmm. because i just felt like i i hadn't been producing long enough or that, you know, I only know how to make one kind of music and people might want me to make drum and bass and I don't know how to make drum and bass. Yeah. <laughs> and there's all of that, those sort of thoughts going through my head, but actually they were really great at giving us a lot of training. And also you have to remember that um, you're stepping into a room with people who mostly know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever you know, it's more than they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was... also makes it challenging, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. They know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely slightly, I found it slightly easier teaching people who already DJ okay. because there's some, some concepts that are kind mm -hmm. of familiar from a DJ mixer that is sort of replicated in the software. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's great that it's an amazing 
thing about, you know, about the software and Ableton, which is what we're teaching on, that you can start with literally no knowledge. And you, after six weeks, you can get to a point where you can make something that sounds kind of like a song. Yeah, It's, you know, it's an incredible piece of software. I wish it had been around or that I'd known about it when I was a teenager. What, is this um, Ableton? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I actually watched um, Robert Henker. So Robert mm. Henker is the um, one of the co-founders of Ableton and yeah. he's also part of Mono Lake, who's like right. a techno, um, dub, I would say dub, dub techno, experimental uh, techno outfit from um, Berlin. And it was amazing hearing him speak because he sees sound and sees visuals as, in, in such a unique way that he was able to program a computer to program the sounds and, and it's, it's yeah. really, I'd recommend um, watching it and, and hearing him speak about it because it's um it's a very it's a very interesting way of looking at music in a mathematical way but then also having a lot of creativity and mm. you know combining different senses and combining intuition into a program and and now yeah. he doesn't really do so I think his um the other half of Mono Lake does the day-to-day running of the business and he's just out there playing around with machines and trying to develop things and touring and stuff. So he's got the wow. he's got the good end of the stick on that one. Yeah. But um <laughs> but it it's it's really interesting to 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 hear about creating a software like that. So yeah. It's really got a lot of capability. Yeah, I mean I I've often wondered actually about the people who made it. I should I should watch that because yeah, there's certain things about the way it's created which are different from the way something like logic is made in that lots of the elements of it you can you can essentially patch anything into anything. It's like a modular synth mm. in a lot of ways, which in itself is quite mad. Like I've often thought, who thought of this? Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah, as you said, how intuitively a lot of it works, um, and the way that you can kind of jam with ideas before you actually move to making something that's like a narrative format song. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot a lot about it which I've often thought, like, yeah, it must have been a person with a really interesting brain that came up with this. Yeah, it's amazing. I have to watch that. How how accessible would would you say production is, and and how accessible is is DJing and entering the music industry for these minorities? Like that you work with? Yeah, it's an interesting question. But I guess um, being a woman is not a minority, or no, but you do deal with the you know inclusivity within the industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, normally, the the um the the term for women is marginalised rather than minority. Marginalised, okay. Yeah, um, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. I think. With production, the, the a lot of the barriers are confidence and also cost. Um, production software is... You, there are free ones out there. Mm-hmm. The most commonly used ones do have a price attached. I mean, Ableton, the cheapest version of Ableton is like 60 or 70 pounds. Okay. So it's it's not... But it does also go a lot higher than It does that, go a lot yeah. higher. If you go up to the full suite, it's like five or 600 pounds. Yeah, push and... Start yeah. Getting the hardware. Yeah. Exactly. You you can kind of very quickly you can spend quite a lot of money, but you can start with like a random old Windows laptop and a sixty pound copy of Ableton and a pair of headphones. That's essentially what I did, and just gradually kind of acquired more stuff. Um, and I think with DJing, there's a similar similar but slightly lower cost barrier. I mean, you can you can get like a entry level DJ controller for under fifty quid. Um, and a cheap pair of, you know, any pair of headphones, headphones that come, you know, free with your phone or whatever it is. Um, so there are cost barriers, which I think are, 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 are not great. They're coming down as the equipment gets cheaper. Um, but also, you know, as a DJ, you need to buy music, mm-hmm. <laughs> which a lot of people don't even really realize or think about when they start. They're like, well, where do I get it's the music from? 
Yeah. Like, a lot of time downloading, sort of categorizing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone is so in the streaming world now that the idea of buying music is like, what? Where would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> do I have to rip a CD? Like, <laughs> um, so that's a whole other kind of world that sometimes people get tripped up by, I think. Um, I think as um, for talking about like marginalized genders, um, I think the co- the confidence thing is is a big challenge, but also um, there is still quite a lot of sexism, even if it's not explicit, <laughs> it's there. Um, so even if you kind of get over the confidence barrier and sort of start to have a go quite quickly, you find yourself in very male dominated spaces, mm-hmm. um, which can be quite particularly with with DJing can be quite like macho and quite intimidating. Everyone's showing off. Um, and if you're if you're not feeling particularly confident about yourself or in that setting anyway, it can be a bit like um, awkward and kind of hard to to really put yourself forward. Which is why one of the reasons why Selectorhood and Saffron exist to make those safe spaces where people feel like they're not kind of threatened in any way by other yeah. people. Um, so there, there's those kind of challenges, and then there's also the wider problems that exist in the nightlife industry for women and and non-binary people and marginalized genders generally mm-hmm. <laughs> um around discrimination and harassment and safety full stop um so there's a whole big old mess basically mm-hmm. um of barriers that that can stop people from from getting into these things i think i would without selectorhood there's no way i would be where i am now or doing the things that i'm doing now i wouldn't have i wouldn't have found my way into that sort of side of the industry at all um so i think those spaces are like a super important um selector is also running in london now i should have said that earlier expanded (laughs) recently so there's a lot more going on in london too um yeah i mean they're just the immediate ones that come to mind i'm sure there are plenty of other other barriers but i think yeah confidence cost and safety really are the the big ones yeah i mean i have uh, a couple of musician friends females who um and non-binary actually that have uh, been booked for a gig based on their looks and based on have have kind of been put on a uh, on a stage for the complete wrong reasons yeah and uh i that that shocked me a bit because i was like oh she really lets happen but it does happen you know and um there have been a couple uh, and and there has been a movement and, and it's it's regular that you'll hear something or an uh, of a night or a label owner we had a couple recently i think lobster theremin and yeah. crossbreed where there was sexual harassment claims and and and, and that subsequently led to uh clo- not, maybe not the closure of the, of the label but serious upheaval and, and a yeah. conversation really sparked from that yeah and and it got people starting to share their experiences and you start mm. to really see that there is a problem here yeah and there's also a problem with latching on to inclusivity, diversity, yeah. and it's a marketing tool. And yeah. how how is it? How genuine is it? How authentic mm. is it when when something is claimed as diverse and inclu- and inclusive? So it's yeah. a tricky one, isn't it? With that, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tokenism going on. Um, I was thinking on the way here actually about a conversation I had with my boyfriend recently. He was watching. Um, some American YouTuber who was talks a lot about race issues. And he was, this guy was saying, um, if you look around and you're the only person of color in the room, then you're in danger effectively, because if anything bad is going to happen to anyone, it's probably going to be you. Mm. Um, and it's very similar being a woman 
in the only woman in the room in the nightlife industry. <laughs> like, and you know, danger could be literal physical danger, or it could be like even just like microaggressions, awkward comments, like any number of things. Um, and, and that is the risk that is ha- that is that's the new emerging issue with tokenism. Really, like if you look at a lineup and you're like, well, I'm clearly here because I'm the woman on the lineup or I'm a person of color, like that's not a great position to be in. You don't really want to be in that situation. And I have heard about people pulling out of gigs for that reason. Like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be put in that awkward position in the first place by the promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to someone recently about this actually, um, about I think part of it comes from kind of commercial entities, promoters, businesses, um, trying to look and act like they're engaged with the community um that's really what's happening and so they're that's why they're you know they don't want to be called out so they're putting like diverse lineups together or with you know one person who's not a white male um uh and it it just doesn't work (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're not really engaging with anyone different their audience is still probably mostly white male it just makes a really uncomfortable situation for the person that's on the stage Mm -hmm. it's you know what good is that really doing nothing so, um, so yeah, I think that that is a that is a big problem, and there's been a lot of talk about things like in, uh, inclusion riders, inclusivity riders. So having a clause in your rider which says, um, "I will only play if the lineup is fifty fifty, or if I'm not the only woman or person of color on the lineup," um, which I think if that can be adopted by some bigger names who are not minorities or marginalized, I think that could start to have an impact. Okay. But I think that's maybe a longer process it's a longer game um yeah and, and there's also a bigger issue that's kind of been coming through with where there is tokenism happening quite often they're booking people who don't have the ability to sell the tickets that they want and so they have these diverse lineups in inverted commas mm-hmm. and then the events gets cancelled because it hasn't sold enough tickets so it's again what's the point <laughs> like mm-hmm. you've got to do the work and engage with the community and help the artists build their careers to the point where they can be a headliner. Um, I mean, this is one of the issues with what Emily Evis has been saying about Glastonbury headliners and oh, yeah. saying the music industry's got a pipeline problem. It's like, you make the pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> You're Glastonbury. You sell out before you even announce anything. Like, you could book whoever you want. Anyway, that's a rant for another day. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it goes beyond um, artists themselves, actually. It mm. goes to everyone involved within the music industry. Even, yeah. Um, I, I actually never find it really that hard to find... I, I, I find there's a lot of great female artists and DJs and I actually look at my lineups and I'm like, oh yeah, there actually are a lot of females on there yeah. because they, they, they're generally in my in my peripheral and it's yeah. what I'm looking for. But then when I don't have the most diverse lineup that, I, that I'd want, I suddenly start to feel bad, but I also start to feel that everyone is watching in and judging yeah, me. And I think there's yeah, another yeah. problem here where it's like you're trying to be diverse and you generally want to be diverse, but... It's like there's a, there's a pressure now as mm. well, and that pressure there's there's good elements of that, but there's also quite a lot of um, everyone is is a bit wound up tight at the moment, and and it's very easy to make a mistake. Yeah, a bit too is it maybe a bit too easy to make mistakes? Not not not, not mm. just in in that, but it genuinely in in the in the realm of inclusivity and being being called out online, particularly. I'm thinking about um, something that came up recently with Keep Hush. I don't know if you'd seen that um they um they got called out online by um i think by an mc they ran they ran a talk about um sound system culture 
and they had a panel. Um, they had David Rodigan, um, who's a white man. Um, they had Tash LC, DJ Storm, who's also white, um, and Vanessa Maria, I think, was hosting it. Um, and they got they got called out by someone on Instagram, basically saying, if you're going to talk about sound system culture, maybe don't invite a bunch of white people. Mm. Um, although, and then they apologized. The founder apologized. And uh, it was a very thoughtful response saying, if we were going to talk about sound system culture, we should have invited some people who, you know, are like from the home of sound system culture, who are Jamaican, yeah. basically, not a bunch of British people. Yeah. Um, because they that it was an entirely British panel. Um so that was quite a thoughtful apology. And then there was this huge debate in the comments mm. of like back and forth of people going, Why is everyone obsessed with race? And people saying it's not about race, it's about people from Jamaica, mm. it's about sound system culture, it's about the origins of the culture. And so it was quite a nuanced conversation, actually, for something that was happening on social media, um, which I was quite surprised by. But it is exactly what you were talking about. People are jumping on it from both sides. Mm assuming it's about one thing when it's actually about something else. Um, so I think it's really amazing that that level of discussion is happening mm-hmm. <laughs> and a level of awareness is there um, and that people are, you know, like diving in, get, get, diving in and actually like trying to educate each other about these things. I think that's really good. I think, yeah, it is. there's definitely a lot more eyes on it and a lot more attention on it now, which does mean that, yeah, as you said, you can feel like you're walking on a bit of a tightrope um, and you have to be a lot more lot more conscious about what you're doing um but i think ultimately as you sort of were saying it's a sign that you're doing a good job if those are if those sort of artists are in your peripheral vision anyway because a lot of the time the problem is that the the promoters or whoever are not working hard enough to actually find those artists in the first place they're just like oh they don't exist i don't know any it's not my problem um whereas if you are making some effort that's (laughs) that's to be like you know that's that's to be applauded and sh- how it should be um so i think i think even you know it it was good that that keep hush event was at least ethnically diverse even if it wasn't in the right direction and they've been called out on that and they've apologized and said we well, you know that was an oversight we should have realized so yeah i think it is um it is it is a tricky it's a tricky thing and it's probably going to continue to be, to be honest. Mm. I can't really see how how it's going to go away. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also the way um, that a lot of industries are, are built. Like I think when when you think about venue owners, for instance, I, wanted, mm. I invited a venue owner once to the show and mm. I was thinking about all the venues that I've done an event in and all of them were run by men. And, and mm. you know, there was definitely female staff but the 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 person leading that initiative was a man and i know that there are women out there and and um, different genders and and minorities out there that are in those positions but they're a lot harder to find and then you start to realize you have to do a lot more digging to find yeah to 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 find the the diversity when you really start to look at the numbers Mm. um but is it something to do with the type of job like do, do a lot of women want to be venue owners would you say um, I think <clears throat> it's an interesting question because I think there's definitely a challenge with like running venues and promoting um, where unless you are able to early on get a job somewhere like that, you know, a salary job, quite often your first experience is going to involve putting your own money on the line. And there's a limit to how who is able to do that. 
um, and also a limit to who's able to, you know, to maintain a career that involves a lot of late nights, a lot of being out all the time, you know, long hours. There's definitely certain barriers for women who, you know, want to start a family that once you've, you know, had a baby, it's a lot harder to be mm. <laughs> out, you know, four nights a week running events. Um, so there's definitely, there's definitely sort of kind of structural issues around that and the fact that most venues are very small businesses um you know sort of grassroots venues uh, are small businesses with you know maternity pay what's that um <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah there's definitely there's definitely challenges around that i think um also for a long time the rest of the industry has been so male dominated that you know if you run a venue that's got bands coming in the tour manager is going to be a guy the sound engineer is going to be a guy so essentially you're you've got to be you've got to be a pretty confident and sort of um ballsy woman to be running a business full of men in operational jobs mm -hmm. um so i can i can see why that's not been like historically why that's not been the case which is is a real shame i mean there are there are more women coming through promoting now um and running venues i think and actually there's been some in the uk music um uk music is the the sort of industry trade body they have a uh, annual like diversity inclusion report and they do a huge survey and actually one of the things they've shown is that at, in the sort of under 25 or under 30 age bracket there are a lot more women and a lot more people of color in the industry which means that it, hopefully in 10 to 15 years time it will look quite different okay hopefully <laughs> yeah. you have to not lose all those people along the way that's the that's the and you, and you want to play a part in that right with the work you do and yeah hopefully yeah i mean definitely one of the one of the aims with future proof the rhythm section project was that we wanted to find um djs and producers who also wanted to play their part in changing the industry whether that's through creating their own community starting a label being a promoter so we're trying to also provide sort of advice and skills and knowledge to help them start those businesses or try those things out that's definitely a big part of it and that came from conversations with bradley zero about his own experiences that he started out in this grassroots electronic music community in peckham uh, which is very diverse and the further he's risen up the tree of the music industry the more and more times he's the only non-white person in the room um the room is entirely full of men mm. and the only way that's going to change is by supporting people at the grassroots level to ascend the tree as well <laughs> yeah, be the change that you want to see yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah so so i want to get to the top tips now so like yeah. what, what you've learned across across your career which is has been really amazing like the work the work that you're doing mm. across all these projects you know if if you are from a marginalized community or, mm. or if if you are trying to get involved and really believe in yourself what what tips would would, would you give what have you learned along the way I think like relationships, having good relationships with people is like such a key thing. Um, I mean, I, I was very fortunate that when I decided to start working in the music industry, I managed to get an entry level job in a venue um, and just sort of work my way up from there. And there are some relationships that I've had throughout that entire time that I'm people I'm still in touch with now um, through through the new projects that I'm running. Um, the music industry is, is so interconnected. <laughs> <laughs> that you show you know basic things like showing up on time being a nice person doing the best job you can trying not to be too tired and hung over <laughs> like <laughs> actually do make a difference you know yeah. um you get a reputation for being reliable and doing a good job and being a nice person and people want to work with you um so i think that's like a really core thing that i've realized is is just yeah relation interpersonal relationships are so vital um 
and you know it can be hard like when I used to I used to be the booker for a festival and you're dealing with artists that have been on the road for two weeks and everyone's exhausted and the tour manager's exhausted and something goes wrong and they'll scream at you it's really hard to maintain your like composure and still be professional and still be nice and not damage that relationship um so it can be there are times when it can be really tough but that is like a really core thing that i've realized um and i think just realizing that particularly from an artist perspective everyone is busy everyone you're trying to deal with is busy so if you're not hearing back from people it's not because they hate you it's not because their music's terrible it's because they're really busy so just being politely persistent is also like a really core thing um and it is connected to the first one, really, I guess, because if you've built good relationships with people, they're much more likely to respond to your emails mm-hmm. <laughs> and not just delete your messages like when you're when you're being persistent because you want something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like a it's a, it's all a game of give and take. You give a lot. Eventually, there'll be a point when you can ask something back. Um, that's definitely what I've what I've realized. So it's quite um, quite fluffy, but hopefully useful. <laughs> no, that, that, I think that's really useful. Yeah. And we'd like to hear about um, your upcoming projects and th- things that you want to promote. Because I remember you, you were saying that you have a few things that are about to launch or, you know, you're working yeah. on. Yeah, I'm working on quite a few things at the moment. Um, I mean, I had, I've just had a remix come out, um, which was um, for an artist called Lark Hall, who's a, a pianist. Sort of more, He makes more sort of neoclassical stuff. And I've done a kind of broken beat meets Laurie Anderson <laughs> remix. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I saw Laurie Anderson once, actually. It was really? Amazing. Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. Um, yeah, so I've just had that remix come out, which is called Uncertain Times. Um, and I've got this EP that I mentioned earlier that I'm working on, which hopefully will be coming out in the autumn, um, which I'm just sort of, uh, it's just being mixed at the moment. Um, and then I'm about to launch a new project, which is the first thing I've really kind of done completely on my own, actually, um, which is called Invisible IDs and great name thanks (laughs) it came from a conversation that i actually had with an a and r for a record label and and it was a woman and she was saying you know there still aren't really that many women out there making electronic music and i was thinking really like i know loads like i've just taught 20 of them (laughs) like (laughs) i can think of plenty um and i you know lots of dj friends i have um try and try and play more music by women and marginalized genders in their dj sets because it's quite easy to put together a set or a mix and then look at it and be like all this music's by men um just because of the vast back catalog you know that's existed for decades where women haven't been making music so invisible ids is about spotlighting women who are producing electronic music um particularly sort of spotlighting the tracks to kind of raise awareness of them with DJs and also with labels and also for fans of the music. Um, so that's going to be launching later this month on Instagram um, and hopefully with some playlists and maybe even a record label eventually. Wow. <laughs> maybe. Lots of things in there. Yeah. That's big, so big exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, and, I'm really excited about it. And Future Proof, I have seen some little ads on social media and, and things mm. um, getting teased. So, so that's now fully underway and yeah. you know, the hard work is paying off. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so we've got um, we've got a masterclass with Jordan Rakai, which is streaming um, very soon, and then two more to come with those, and then that will be pretty much the end of that cycle of the project. So it'll all sort of wrap up in July, um, and then we'll take a break and work out what we're doing next. <laughs> Amazing! Thank you so much, Emily, for joining me. It's been such a lovely chat, and yeah. I really love all the work you're doing and and all the insights. And I really hope that this is. If anyone's listening out there that that does want to take that step or even can contact you and 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 get some more and, and get some more confidence to 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 really go and get um, 
their creativity and, and express themselves. So thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for I having me. Really hope our, our paths cross again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hope so. And yeah, as you say, if anyone wants to get in touch with me for advice or contacts or anything, I'm happy to happy to chat. Echo Juliet as well. Yes. Have set on some lineups coming up soon. <laughs> <laughs> hope so. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks very much.